seated. If the children haven't been dismissed already, they can be dismissed to Bible Adventures now. I want to, again, extend an invitation uh, for tonight. It's going to be a blast. It's always fun to uh, do this potluck that we do. So please just bring something that represents and that's very loose your culture in some ways. And if you can't cook anything, that's okay. Just come and enjoy it. We're going to have a, a good good evening together, uh, which we are, are very much looking forward to. So I hope you can come and participate with us. We'll start at, at 5 p.m. tonight. We're closing up our series called Love in Christ, where we've been really slowly going through First John together. And we've talked about several times during this series that this is written likely to a small group, maybe about 15, 20 people, uh, the book of 1 John, and is written to this group that is trying to figure out, okay, we possibly have the gospel of John. Now, what does it look like for us to live this out together? What does it look like to live uh, in Christian community? So we've been going through this together. I hope you've gotten some good things out of it. And as Lars said, we'll be closing our series out uh, next week. But we're going to look at the last uh, chunk of text in 1 John Uh, chapter 5 in just a minute. I read a story recently about an eight-year-old girl um, named Caitlin Lunt who had done something really nice. She'd listened to her teachers or something in school, and her mom said, you can go on and buy a doll on Amazon.com, and then you can have that because you've been so good. And her mom left her alone with Amazon, which probably wasn't the best thing to do, and didn't really realize it, didn't think about it until $350 worth of Barbies and a large toy pony came to their home um, just a couple days later. She was able to use it as a teaching moment for her daughter. They took all of the stuff. She didn't even get to keep one thing to um, some local shelters and were able to give it to kids in need. But I was thinking about myself, like what would I do if all of a sudden, you know, my job responsibilities were all gone and perhaps money wasn't a restriction anymore? Like what would you do? What would you buy? What would you go for? Because the Bible says that that's probably, if you're honest, where your heart is. What would you say that you're, if you just suddenly had the opportunity to buy as much of whatever you wanted, you know, the credit card didn't really mean anything to you or whatever, what would you do? What would you buy? Because the Bible has a word for some of that, how we can get that messed up a little bit. And the word is idolatry, which John addresses today in kind of a weird move, but I think it makes sense as we think through it. So 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13, says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those people whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. It's very clear. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You might be like, all right, and where does this continue? It just stops right there. That's a bit of an abrupt, it's like, dear children, please keep yourselves from idols. And then it just closes out First John. It ends with a little bit of a thud. 
This passage begins by talking about sin, and he's saying basically that there are sins that we can all get lost in. We can go in certain directions that can put us in places that it's difficult for us to recover from, and we know this is true. Maybe there's a few years of your life that you would say, wow, I wish I could have a do-over over whatever that time was. You know, I, I went in this direction, or things just weren't right, and eventually I was maybe able to come to my senses, but I was really like lost for a long period of time. Sin has a way of doing that to us. And it's not something that I don't, I don't think we easily choose, but it's like we take one step in one direction, and then we kind of end up in a space perhaps that we think, this is so complex, how did I even get here? And how do I get back? So he says, pray for people who are struggling with that. And if you're struggling with, with it yourself, know that you can turn to God. And then he says something very interesting, uh, very odd that he would use this, because if you know anything or have thought about First John as we've been looking at this series, First John is very repetitive, isn't it? Just like love, 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 light, light. It's like just over and over again, these themes that he's talked about a lot and words that he uses a lot in the gospel of John as well. And then he uses this word that John never uses anywhere else, the gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and in Revelation, he never uses this word anywhere. It's only used four times in the, in the New Testament itself. It's this word, understanding. Jesus has given us understanding. It's the only time that he uses this word. It's very specific about it. In preaching, you might have this Talk, talk in your industry, whatever it is that you do in preaching, uh, we talk about landing the plane. My friends and I will say, like, did you land the plane well? If you talk about a sermon, and sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're listening to a preacher that you wish would land the plane. Like, it seems like we're just kind of circling the airport, and it's like, I think this is point eight now. I don't really know what, what's going on, and you kind of wish the person would get along to landing the plane. And so this is an interesting way that John lands the plane. After talking about all these things about Jesus and who Jesus is, he, he says, says, and he gives us understanding, which is a really fascinating way to end, because let's fill in the blank right here. Think of a, a blank that you could fill in for this. Jesus came to, and this is what he says, Jesus came to give us understanding. If I was to ask you this before we started today, there would be lots of answers that would come up, right? And lots of good, true, biblical answers, that Jesus came to die, to, our, to, to die for our sins, perhaps, to reconcile us with God and with other people. There, there's lots of different ways that you could fill in this blank. Lots of right ways that you could fill in this blank. But John says, at kind of the apex of his letter, he says, Jesus came to give us understanding. The word in Greek can can mean uh, two things. It means either to take something that is confusing or make it clear, or gaining clarity on something that you previously thought about differently. So you had this one idea, and then someone comes, or you understand this truth, and now you think about it differently. But I think John is trying to get us to think about, as we think about kind of gaining clarity and thinking about our life and our world, and what this means for us. I think one way that you might understand it is Jesus came to make things simple. That's something that I think you see in his ministry. He is always about, in interactions with people, helping them to understand a little bit better, to gain clarity on a certain situation. For example, a thing that had been hotly debated for a thousand years before the time of Jesus is the Sabbath, because it's a really great idea, but how do you practice it? 
And you're not supposed to work, but what exactly does that mean, right? What is work? How do you define work? And so for a thousand years, uh, Jewish rabbis had come up with these ideas because the thought was you really don't want to break the rule because if you break the rule, you're in a lot of trouble. So they build fences around the rule. So it's like, all right, what does it mean to work? We're going to try to understand the spirit of what that is, but then I'm going to define some fences. So if you do mess up, then you're just breaking down a fence and not like the heart of the rule. So let's talk about how we do this. And people debated this for for thousands of years. Um, Early understandings of this that we have copies of say that there's supposed to be no generative endeavors, no changes to the environment, no food prep, no lifting of things, no making others work. Not like, hey, you're my slave, do this for me. Like That's not going to work either. Or um, no making your animals work for you, no lighting fires, no walking more than 2,000 cubits, which is a half a mile. So there's all of these things that come around. Okay, here is what we're trying to get to, no work, but here are the ways that we define that. And here's how this is going to be. And this is still present in Jewish understanding today. A more recent um, understanding of this, uh, trying to figure out exactly what work was, is, is this. It says, objects that are forbidden. Um, it's a couple after that. Objects that are forbidden. Uh, <laughs> you're like, whoa, they write in hieroglyphics. Um, no. Um, that objects that are forbidden, a stapler, a pen, a hammer, etc., they are allowed to be moved if they aren't used for their working purpose. So if you move a stapler, you can't like staple as you move it, but it's like if a stapler is in your way, you can move it. Um, For example, a telephone book can be used as a booster seat. And this is probably a little while ago because telephone books aren't really around either uh, anymore. But this is the the way that it's, it's understood. This is just a more recent example. Like this is what work is going to be and this is what it's not going to be. Still today, as I said, if you go to certain parts of L.A. on Saturday, it's actually kind of beautiful to watch some of the Orthodox Jewish believers as they walk uh, together. Um, If you happen to live in the western part of L.A., there's a lot of people over in that direction. And so people are still trying to figure out what does it mean to work, what does it mean to not work. So people were always trying to get Jesus in trouble. So the religious leaders come at one time when his disciples are picking grain in a field and they get him in trouble and say, "Ah, you're not allowed to do that. And Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which is just a a soundbite, right? And this... As you think about it, he says like in in just one word, I mean, it's like a mic drop moment, basically. He just says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And think about the people who would have first heard this, the religious leaders who were like so concerned about all the rules and the structure and all the stuff they have in place and all the ways that they've done this. And they're just so filled with angst about it. And Jesus just says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And really what you all have been doing is you've been worshiping the Sabbath and not God. With all these fences that you've created around this, you have been worshiping, you've been bound down to the fence and not God. So correct that a little bit. And just think about all the anxiety, there's debates about, well, are you allowed to lift this far? Can you go further than a half mile? It's like all the debate, just thousands of years of anxiety that's been built up around this. And Jesus just kind of says, the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing. 
He doesn't say not to practice it, actually. And we actually need, we need a, probably a sermon series on how to get some Sabbath back into our lives. But Jesus says to these people, just stop being Sabbath police, because that's work. Stop going around and telling everybody how they're doing the Sabbath wrong. It's supposed to be a blessing for you. Jesus gives this debate, which again had been raging and then still to this day is an issue. There's so much tension in Jesus just in a phrase. Because it's supposed to be a blessing. Use it as a blessing in your life. Think about the woman caught in adultery, which raises a lot of questions because the Greeks basically says like she was caught in the act of adultery, and it takes two to tango uh, in that, that act. So where's the man is the first question. But she's been being used as a prop in this moment for the religious leaders who want to present Jesus with a really impossible situation to answer because in the Jewish law, you could stone someone who was an adulterer. And so they show up and they throw this woman at Jesus' feet and they're basically like, all right, what are you going to do? How are you going to solve this one? And it's much easier to throw stones than it is to actually enter in and help repair somebody's life. And so they're just all ready. They have their stones ready to go. And first of all, just the action itself is brilliant. I love what Jesus does first. He bends down and writes in the sand, which I see as a moment. This woman is caught literally, I believe, in the act of adultery. She maybe has a moment when the eyes of the world aren't on her for 30 seconds as he bends down and gathers a little bit of their attention. She might have a moment to cover herself up with something. Then he stands up after riding in the sand. He says, if any of you is without sin, go ahead. And it says the old ones first because they recognize their brokenness. They begin to walk away. A problem that seems very complex, one that seems like it's not going to have a very easy answer. Jesus just says, if you're without sin, go ahead. I believe this is what God is doing really throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the Hebrew word that's used to describe uh, the world before God's work in it is tovu vavohu, which is a fun word to say. But um, the way that it might be translated in your Bible is kind of like empty and void. But there's a more understanding of it actually is that there's some sort of like chaos and there's, there's confusion in the world. That there's confusion and chaos going on and there's like this, this emptiness and it's not really sure what's going to happen next. And what does God do? God comes in like a, like a type A type person and just gives order. What once was chaotic, I'm bringing order to. I'm working in. What once is confusing and chaotic, God enters in and says, okay, here's what this is going to look like. Here is how this world is going to be. So from the very beginning of Scripture, God is is bringing understanding and clarity to the world. And Jesus continues that work. Jesus continues to bring Issues And these are things that would have been such 
hard, debated topics. Religious leaders are just coming to him and saying, let me get your take on this. Let me get your take on that. And Jesus is never like afraid or nervous. He just calmly gives these answers that have literally changed the world since then. The things that Jesus says, the way that he shows love and grace to people, he he changes things. And the question that I would have for us is, do you believe then that Jesus, that God's spirit, God's presence with us in the world still has the ability to do that in your life? And could you put yourself in one of these stories? And maybe you have a really chaotic hairball of a mess in your life right now, and you're thinking, how am I even going to get through this? Would you be willing to just pray and say, God, can you help me with this? Can you give me some wisdom? Maybe it's going to a a trusted mentor or friend who can just say, yeah, I think you need to take this step or that step. Or maybe it's just spending some extra time in prayer, spending time in God's word and saying, God, give me clarity. Give me understanding in this situation. Because I've tried it my way for a long time and it just keeps getting worse. You ever have a situation like that? You're trying to untangle something, it just gets more and more tangled. That can be how life is sometimes. When we have issues and we just don't really have a good way of dealing with it, and I think what John is inviting us to understand is that Jesus can give us clarity. If we're willing to submit ourselves over to him, Jesus can give us understanding. And then there's the abrupt switch at the end. And dear children, keep yourselves from idols. The closest thing I have to an idol Kind of laying around is my bobblehead collection. This is a Matt Kemp bobblehead who had a really huge three-run homer last night. Go Dodgers uh, for, for that one. Yeah, that was that was a uh, much. I think that's the first amen Justin's ever given me. So I don't. This is the most statue-like thing that, that I have. And when we think about idols, we can think of like a statue or something. Perhaps you have a statue that you bow down to, but probably not. If you do, let's have a conversation about why you, why you shouldn't, shouldn't do that anymore. But we can think of it as like, you know, what, what should I do? Should I go here or there? And Matt gives us a yes or no. All he can really do is yes. And you're, you're yeah, just, I don't know. That's really all. All, all that, that he can do, his answers aren't, aren't very good. So we can think of idols typically in, in that way. And that would have been more of the understanding of, of an idol, that is the culture that John is writing to. There would have been temples that you could go to to worship at these different idols. But perhaps we don't have the, like the stone and structure or wood or whatever the idols were, were made of at different times in that way. But we still have our idols. We just call them by different names, right? And in some ways it's more dangerous, because it's a little bit more subtle. Because we can think like, oh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not bowing down in front of that thing or that thing, but in reality, we actually are. Have you ever known of families? Because we look at back at some of the Old Testament that is written at a time when people would literally offer children as sacrifices. They would offer children as sacrifices. That's one thing that God is, is teaching them from the very beginning. He asks for this child sacrifice, but reverses it in the end. One of the things that I think is being taught in the story of Abraham and Isaac is that God is not like that. God's not like all the other gods. Because the thought was, if you had done all this stuff to try and sacrifice to all of these different kinds of idols, then the thing that would be most valuable to you at some point is one of your kids. So would you be willing to do that for a god or goddess. And we look at that and think, that's so primitive, right? I can't believe that people would think like that. But yet we all know people 
who've worked 80-hour work weeks and have no relationship with their kids because of it, right? So it's just as dangerous, I would say, the world we live in. In fact, maybe even more. Because we can think, oh, that's all just so primitive and backwards, and I would never fall into that. But we know some people who do. So we still struggle with our share of idols. There was a research study done by Forbes magazine, and it asked Americans to describe the good life. We asked people, what does the good life look like? There were these pretty consistent answers. Living in a 4,000-square-foot home, owning a second home in a beautiful place, having several luxury cars, dinner once a week at a ritzy restaurant, three vacations a year, private school for your children, an upscale college when they graduate. Some of us are like, I'd like one of those, please. Like, let's just uh, let's, uh, go, go for one. And I know people who, who have some of this stuff, and those who, who I know who are, I think, living in, in the correct way, they would tell you, as, as nice as it is, it makes it perhaps more comfortable to have some of these things. This stuff isn't really what makes my life worth living. And it's understanding that those things need to have their proper place that helps us to realize what is really a good life the things that make the most difference in our lives. Having vacations aren't that fun if you don't like the people that you're on vacation with, right? Or having a special place to go in the mountains isn't that great if you're the only one there. What is it that really makes a good life? And this has been a struggle forever. Back in in the day of Paul, uh, there used to be this, this way, there was a, a quote that people said, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And what they would mean by that is just eat whatever you want, basically, and it, it doesn't matter. It was this notion that basically if you have an impulse, then you should fulfill it, which I would say is arguably a little bit of the way that we see things today. If you have an impulse, then you should fulfill it. And they would have the rich elite during that time, they would have these glorious feasts where people would just come and eat. Think of Thanksgiving dinner. They would just eat and eat and eat. So much so that there was a room in some of these homes called the vomitorium where you can kind of just fill in the blank of what would happen in there. And then the thought was you could just get right back to it, right? You could like go and go and go and go and go and then just eventually get right back to it. That seems like if you're hosting that night, it's like, is the vomitorium clean? Like, I don't know, just a little, just a little too crazy. And Paul writes to people who would have very much understood this and known this was in, in the culture uh, of that time. And he basically says that you can end up worshiping your stomach. Their God is their stomach, he writes about it. He says that that is idolatry. So it's a bit of an odd transition, I would say, that Jesus gives us this understanding, first, that there's, there's sin in the world. We can get lost in the direction that we go uh, with sin, but Jesus gives us this understanding. But in one closing mark, he says, but be really careful. If you really want like, true understanding from God, be very careful about the idols that you have. I think the question that he would want to leave us with is, what is it that you're actually worshiping? 
If you want true understanding from God about a complex situation or something that's difficult for you to understand that you're struggling to deal with, what you might first have to ask is, what am I actually worshiping? What is it that is in the way of me understanding God's call on my life? I have this gnawing sense in me that I should be more generous with my money or more generous with my time, but I want to hold on to it. Or perhaps you're, you're single and you just think, you know, I really, really want to get married and have a family someday. And that's just the thing that you're just like, that is it. That's all that I think about. It might be an idol. Or maybe you've gotten married and you've realized that the single life was actually kind of cool. <laughs> uh, and you, you've kind of realized that you came into this relationship with a lot of expectations. Either you wanted him to be exactly like your dad or nothing like your dad, and he's just him. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says this this way, you always marry the wrong person. <laughs> so if you are in that moment right now, or like, I think I married the wrong person, don't look around at anybody right now, but <laughs> congratulations, everybody does. And this isn't just about marriage. This is about everything. Anything that you're looking to, to give you some sort of ultimate significance, again, whatever it is, it's idolatry is what it is. So if you really are seeking understanding and deeper clarity in a situation, and would you be willing to to go to God and say, Jesus, would you give me a deeper sense of understanding? Would you help me? Perhaps you're in a really difficult situation. Would you be willing to ask, God, can you tell me what's the next step I need to take? What is the next right step? And that might step on some toes of idolatry that you have that's probably a good thing. One thing that strikes me about Jesus, again, everybody's always wanting his take on debates and they're coming up to him. And for me, that would just be exhausting. I mean, if everybody was just coming up to me every single moment of the day and like, you know, throwing someone in adultery right in front of me or debating me about the Sabbath or like all this stuff, I'd just be filled with anxiety and stress. But Jesus is always just so calm. He gives the answer from a place of love. And we look at these stories and think, wow, that's really remarkable that Jesus was able to do that for that person. Do you believe that Jesus can do that for you? The issue of the Sabbath, which had been debated for thousands of years, and they had rules upon rules upon rules. They had all of this stuff. And Jesus just says, it's basically meant to be a blessing. Don't worship the Sabbath itself. Worship God. The woman caught in adultery. I imagine Jesus looking around at that that crowd of people, the guys who had the stones ready to stone her, and Jesus knows everything, and so he's looking at this one guy like, Felix, you know where you were last night? I mean, like, geez. Like, come on now. Like, let's just be honest here, right? If you want to spend your life throwing stones, and you can... Try and live from that perspective, but let those stones drop. Ask what might be going on in your heart. And I think about that woman 
again as she's caught literally in the act of adultery. For a minute, just picture what she might look like. And is all of her life solved right then? No? I mean, she has an immediate problem that's dealt with, that her accusers are gone. But if she's really going to get her life back on track, Jesus has given her the literal opportunity to take the right next step, but she's going to need to continue to follow him, right? Because her life sounds like a little bit of a hairball mess. And she's going to need to continue to lean on God, to continue to, to find ways that she can passionately follow Jesus with her life. Do you believe that Jesus could give you wisdom to give you clarity in a situation? It's fascinating that John writes this and doesn't use this word anywhere else, but says that Jesus can give us clarity and understanding. We're going to worship now and sing that song that we sang once before called Broken Vessels. As we sing that, I hope that you recognize that we all are broken vessels and we're striving the best we can to live into God's calling in our life. But would you be willing to think about whatever situation seems to be complex for you right now? Something that seems to maybe just be too difficult and to just ask God as we worship, what is the next right step? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would all have soft hearts. That we would be willing to examine the idols that we've worshipped. That we would be able to ask ourselves, what is the next right step? We're broken, and we admit that. And we need your grace to restore us and to continue to call us forward. May you give us the understanding and clarity that we all need. Your son, Jesus, name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.